Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The next time you're shopping for mountain bike gear, check out singletracks.com slash deals. Each week, we share our favorite product picks and exclusive coupon codes from our partners. You can also use the page to search for whatever you're buying, from complete mountain bikes to brake sets and tire sealant. That's singletracks.com slash deals. And to get our weekly picks delivered to your inbox, be sure to sign up for our newsletter. Links to the newsletter and deals page are in the show notes. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Larry Peasy. So Larry is the Chief Commercial Officer for Alta Cycling Group, which is the parent company of well-known bike brands, including Diamondback, Raleigh, and Ghost. He's also a board member at People for Bikes, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to making bicycling safer, easier to access, and more fun. Thanks for joining us, Larry. Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. You've been in the bike industry since before some of our listeners were born. How did you first get your start? (laughs) Well, um, I got sort of attracted to cycling as a teenager um, growing up during the uh, bicycle boom days of the early 1970s. And I really got interested in uh, the European Grand Tours and and the sport of road racing. and, uh, you know, that cast of, you know, cycling greats like Giamondi and, and Merricks and, and the likes. Um, and, uh, you know, I started, uh, I, I started uh, racing bikes and working in a local bike shop uh, where I grew up in Elkins Park, Pennsylvania, a suburban Philadelphia community, uh, to be able to support the habit of buying bike parts. <laughs> right. <laughs> So, yeah, you mentioned that uh, bikes were booming in the 70s and, you know, you've been in the industry for a long time. How has the bike industry changed over the years? Is, have, there, have there been a number of those booms and like what, what's kind of been your experience? Yeah, um, well, it's, you know, it's changed pretty dramatically. I mean, you know, back then the, uh, the industry was really sort of Eurocentric. Um, you know, the, the component brands were brands like Campagnolo and Mavic and, you know, there were small handcrafted, you know, builders like uh, Cinelli and Mossi and Clonago. Um, and, uh, you know, fast forward to today, um, everything sort of begins in Asia, um, you know, with the supply chain on components and the majority of frame sets are mass produced in factories from, you know, anywhere from northern China to uh you know, Southeast Asia and, you know, Vietnam is a very popular place. So huge changes for uh, the industry. You know, I think the product has come a long way. Um, you know, the advent of the mountain bike, um, you know, I think that really caused the industry to, uh, you know, to innovate uh, very significantly with, you know, the advent of suspension technology and things that just would have never been considered if cycling uh, stayed on paved surfaces. Yeah, definitely. I mean, have you seen a shift too in terms of the type of 
writing that people are doing. It sounds like, you know, in the 70s, it was this European sort of road flavor to the bike industry, or that's at least that's what was was popular at that time. Um, have you seen sort of those shifts take place as well? Yeah, definitely. You know, when I was growing up, I think most people considered bikes, you know, toys for kids. Uh, you know, the ubiquitous bike under the Christmas tree was sort of the the norm. And, um, you know, what really lured me in was, you know, sort of this professional road racing mentality. And, um, you know, there's been a huge shift. You know, I think that um, in my the course of my career, um, you know, owning bike shops for uh, about 15 years before I jumped into the other side of the industry, mm-hmm. you know, I got to live through sort of the BMX era, which <laughs> made people think about bikes on dirt. Yeah. Um, and that was a pretty cool phenomenon that sort of, you know, I think uh, spurred the advent of the mountain bike. Mm-hmm. And, uh you know, what's, what's interesting to me is um, there are some things that are driving people, you know, off of paved surfaces uh, and, uh, you know, causing people to, to seek out, you know, safer and more laid back places to ride, which I think is really cool. Yeah. So it's still sort of a recreational thing for people, but more, not just kids anymore, right? Like anybody can go out and, and have fun on a bike and, you know, you mentioned sort of getting off road is becoming more popular. It seems like gravel, especially right now, is a real growth area for biking, at least especially here in the United States. Why do you think that's so popular? Well, you know, it's it's interesting because I didn't know a whole heck of a lot about, you know, gravel roads or primitive roads or, mm-hmm. you know, fire access trails until I started uh, getting involved with the work that we do at People for Bikes hmm. and advocating for you know, for the industry and, uh, you know, come to find that there are literally hundreds of thousands of miles of, you know, of gravel roads or, you know, fire access roads and trails, um, you know, into, uh, wilderness areas all around the country, um, that make some pretty cool places to ride, uh, you know, for certain kinds of applications. And, um, you know, gravel is, is taking off. And I, I really think, that um, there are a couple of drivers. Um, you know, first, I think both, you know, hardcore avid cyclists and recreational fitness riders are uh, afraid of distracted drivers. And, you know, and second, I think uh, riding on uh, mixed surfaces, these primitive roads and fire trails, is just centered around having fun uh, out there on a bike uh, as opposed to, you know, sort of the typical suffer fest that, you know, sometimes is, you know, the, the competitive side of, uh, of our sport. And, um, you know, it enables people to, you know, just go out for a ride with friends and family, uh, not the extreme, you know, hucking off, uh, off, off jumps and the adrenaline experience that, you know, is sometimes mountain biking mm-hmm. or the, you know, sort of aero go fast, you know, road bike experience. So I think it's really compelling to me. Yeah, it's sort of a middle ground between road biking and mountain biking, not too extreme in either sense. You mentioned distracted drivers, and I, I think that's interesting. I mean, obviously, drivers have always been distracted, but yeah, but what's changed is cell phones, right? I mean, I guess that's a problem and that, that riders are aware of, and yeah, they're seeking safer places to ride. 
And also, I think it's interesting, you know, and maybe this is just a temporary thing, but right now uh, during this, you know, pandemic, a lot of people are choosing to ride from home or they're forced to ride from home, not allowed to go out and travel. And it seems like a gravel bike opens up a lot more opportunities in terms of, like you said, mixed road rides and being able to do that sort of close to home. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, a, a gravel bike is sort of like a multi-tool, you know, you can, you can ride it on, on pavement, you can ride it on, you know, crush and run trails, you can ride it on dirt and, uh, it enables people to sort of go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, I think calling them gravel bikes, you know, is, is, uh, not a perfect definition, um, but that's what you know. We've we've all uh, in the industry sort of landed on as a descriptor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what would be a better a better name for them? Yeah, I mean, you know, we we've used you know all road or any road mm-hmm. as, as descriptors. We you know we find people are uh, you know a lot of times consumers are asking questions about. Well, how wide of a tire can you put on? And mm-hmm. if you put on this wide tire, can you, you know, put on fenders? And it's like fenders. Why would you want fenders? <laughs> but you know, people are clearly using them for for more than just uh, riding on on gravel for for fun or fitness. Right. Yeah. Well, and it seems like even calling it mixed road is too limiting because a lot of people think, yeah, oh, I'll take it on single track a little bit too. Especially the mountain bikers who are. Um, maybe a little more confident in their skills or who are just kind of looking to make their local trails more challenging. So yeah, it is hard to put a label on exactly what these bikes are. Yeah, no, no question. I, I was out for uh, a ride on my mountain bike on a local trail network here in Maryland the other day. And uh, there was a guy that zoomed past me on a, on a, on a gravel bike <laughs> on, on these, these trails. It's uh People with greater skill set than I, um, for you know, for for riding single track, can uh, can do some pretty amazing things. Yeah, for sure. So, what does the average gravel bike customer look like? Are you seeing more road riders who are looking to get off roads, like you said, to to get away from the cell phone drivers, or is it mountain bikers who are moving toward these like longer mixed surface rides, or or is it like a completely new category of rider? Well, you know, I think it's actually all three, hmm. but it's it's new riders that really get me excited as a as a marketer. Hmm. You know, anytime we can get someone to consider getting on a bike, any kind of bike, uh, instead of doing something else for sport or fitness or transportation or recreation, is a great thing for uh, mm-hmm. you know for us and the and the bike industry, and I think the community at large. Um, it it really. Um, is attractive that, you know, it's lowering new riders, but, you know, certainly, uh, you know, we have some, uh, bunch of road bike riders that, you know, like, I, like we talked about earlier are really concerned about, you know, those distracted by smartphones, uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, sort of the, the, the awareness of people getting, uh, clipped by a car, um, due to social media. Uh, and then, you know, I think, uh, I think it's attractive to a lot of mountain bike riders too, that are just looking for, you know, uh, something else to do mm. and, uh, you know, to take advantage of, you know, this huge network of, uh, you know, of, of primitive roads around the country. Yeah. 
Interesting. Well, you know, thinking of new writers, it seems like people that I know, you know, who sort of know me casually and know that I do what I do, they, they say, oh, I'm thinking about getting a bike. And, you know, nine times out of 10, seems like they're looking at a hybrid bike um, because they're like, oh, well, maybe I want to take it on the road. Maybe I want to take it on the trail. And hybrids to me never seemed like a, a great solution for either of those. But gravel bikes, I don't know. They just seem at least they seem cooler. Right. Like, is that is that something that you're seeing that people are are uh, recognizing that kind of versatility of the bike as, as far as new riders go? Yeah. I, you know, I think uh, a lot of it comes from sort of the advice they get from, you know, a friend or an avid cyclist that, you know, that they look to or, or uh, somebody at the local bike shop that is making a recommendation about what kind of bike somebody should get based mm-hmm. on the kind of riding they're thinking about doing. And, you know, gravel bikes are so incredibly versatile. I mean, they can be, you know, comfortable uh, and sturdy commuters. They can be, you know, great recreational bikes. You can, you know, choose to go on the you know, on the crush and run rails to trails thing with your, with your family, uh, you know, or you can take it off, off road or even on single track as we, you know, as we mentioned earlier. So, you know, having that versatility, uh, for a consumer, I think is, is, uh, one reason to buy, you know, and I think as people learn more about, uh, cycling, you know, it, it, they wind up coming to the realization that while well, bikes sort of are, you know, somewhat function specific, and you know, if I'm having a great time riding single track, I would sure be nice to have, uh, you know, a, a fully that you know you can maximize that experience mm-hmm. on. But um, you know, for people just getting started or getting back into cycling, I think you know, a gravel bike's a great choice. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you a personal question now. How many bikes do you own? <laughs> oh, geez. Too many is probably <laughs> the right uh, answer. Um, okay. You know, I have a hard time parting with uh, with bikes. I get my heartstrings sort of attached. And, uh, you know, whenever a bike box shows up on my doorstep, the first question my wife asks is, uh, okay, which one are you going to get rid of? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I've got, yeah. I've got uh, a lot of spaces filled with, uh, with, with bikes, but, um, and you know, I, 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 it's, I think like everyone, you know, you, you love a bike, you've, you had a great experience on a particular bike, but new technology comes along and you, you know, you wind up uh, displacing it. Um, certainly in my role, I have the opportunity, you know, to, to try out the latest and greatest and, uh, you know, inevitably I wind up, I wind up getting one that I can keep. Yeah. <laughs> well, do you think that a gravel bike replaces one or more bikes in other people's sheds? Or do you think it is more of one of these precision tools? I know for me, you know, it feels like maybe I could get away with um, replacing like my road bike and maybe my hardtail with a gravel bike. Um, are you seeing that? Or do you think, do you think a gravel bike really is like a a specialized tool that people are going to want to have uh, in their shed in addition to all those other bikes? I think for an enthusiast, it's a, you know, it's a precision device. It's something, you know, for a specific kind of ride, Mm -hmm. but, you know, for, 
you know, someone that uh, is is just getting back in or, you know, doesn't already own, uh, you know, a, a, a hardtail mountain bike or, uh, you know, a performance uh, or endurance road bike, you know, it, it can be, it can replace, you know, those, those bikes. Um, but I, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, I think enthusiasts are, uh, are being intrigued by the category and, you know, wind up, wind up buying uh, a gravel specific bike for a very specific kind of an in- intent. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the less inclined are, you know, are, are choosing it as a multi-tool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, given that, what are sort of the price points for gravel bikes compared to, say, a mountain or road bike? Are people willing to spend like $10,000 on a, a gravel bike right now? Yeah, I wish. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, no, you know, 1500 to $2,000 is the largest price band um, with 1000 to $1,500 sort of being right behind. So that, you know, 1000 to $2,000 range right now makes up you know, the largest part of the, uh, of the category, Mm -hmm. but there's definitely growth as we innovate the product uh, at higher price points. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, whenever a category begins to, um, take off in our industry, everybody jumps in and starts to innovate and invest in, you know, in engineering and development and, uh, you know, three to $6,000 range, uh, we're seeing some, you know, some nice growth. It's, it's encouraging, you know, of course we love to sell, you know, premium products, uh, being enthusiasts. Um, right. And, uh, but quite honestly, there's very little in the $10,000 level. I mean, yeah. you know, there, there's a little bit of activity, but <laughs> no, not, not yet. Yeah. Well, I mean, how does that compare? You, you mentioned a thousand to $2,000 is kind of the sweet spot for gravel, right now uh is is that similar to road bikes and mountain bikes i mean i'm i'm not even sure right from the the demand side if that's if that's a lot or a little yeah no it's um you know anytime that uh you're you know in the 15 to 2000 dollar range um you know that that constitutes you know a, a quality premium product for an average consumer you know it, we sort of separate the enthusiasts from, you know, sort of the average, you know, person going into a bike shop looking, you know, to either get back into cycling or, or, you know, or uh, doing it for the first time perhaps. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's pretty good. That's a pretty, uh, pretty significant spend for, uh, the average, the average consumer. So, you know, I, I would say that, you know, it's moving in, in the right direction. Um, when the category first started, you know, it was really even sub $1,000 um, that, that people were, you know, maybe looking to just test the waters. And, you know, the industry was not really willing to commit. The early stage gravel bikes were, you know, steel frames that didn't require a huge investment in tooling. And, uh, and now you're seeing some really pretty beautiful, you know, carbon bikes with, uh, you know, with some interesting modern geometries, a little slacker front end. That uh, you know, we we can really see that the engineers are you know are starting to focus on the category and do some pretty cool stuff. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it, it sort of reminds me of fat bikes and and how that was sort of rolled out at, at the lower price points. Never really got to 
the super high ones. Um, but I think the big difference is, you know, fat biking is, is very specific and very niche. You need to live somewhere where there's a lot of snow or some other <laughs> unusual conditions. Uh, whereas gravel, it, though it's kind of starting out similarly, it seems like it, it has a lot more room for growth. Yeah, I completely, uh, completely agree. You know, fat bikes are still going strong in the upper tier of the Midwest, you know, where people ride mm-hmm. in the winter and, and, you know, soft surfaces and snow and stuff. But uh, they're not really popular, you know, as popular as they were when they first uh, they first got going. When a lot of people were sort of testing the, the waters. I don't see that happening with gravel. I think gravel is here to here to stay as a category. And I think it's going to continue to innovate. Yeah. Well, you mentioned earlier that gravel is attractive to people because, you know, in a lot of ways it's, it's about having fun and it's not about the suffer fests or even competition necessarily, but humans are competitive people, right? <laughs> We're a competitive species. And so there's certainly gravel racing already exists and just seems like that's, that's going to progress even further. Do you, do you see that happening? Is this something that might fit into like a World Cup model eventually? Well, I, I think racing is definitely coming on in, in the category. I, I see all kinds of competitive cyclists getting into it. And um, most of the events uh, always turn into some type of race for those, uh, you know, up for the challenge. Um, you know, I mean, there's so many uh, gravel events on the calendar now. I mean, you know, it's and there's some ones with great notoriety, uh, and and people are flocking to them. And and I think you know this is a part that's really attractive to me. You know, you can get the hardcore enthusiasts that want to ride competitively mm-hmm. involved in these things because you know off the front always turns into a race. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, then their families, you know, it's just all about finishing. And, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, I think the racing side is definitely coming on. I even think that triathlon will at some point wind up integrating gravel into their, into their sport. Wow. A gravel tr- time trial bike. I want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see what, what they do to a gravel bike to, to make it weird. Well, I think, you know, for the same reason that, uh, you know, endurance road riders or, you know, or, or sport road riders are looking to get off of paved surfaces, triathletes are, are, you know, sort of doing the same thing. And, uh, and it's a different kind of workout. I don't know that we're going to have the uh, super bikes uh, of uh, triathlon in, <laughs> in gravel. I don't know that arrow comes into play all that much. But, you know, certainly it's a, it's a kind of endurance that, uh, you know, is, is sort of interesting to a lot of triathletes. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we sponsor a female triathlete on our Diamondback uh, squad that uh, you know she loves it she she uh, she thinks gravel is next best thing uh, and uh, and you know a lot of the folks that are really close to the to the sport you know have said yep this is uh, this is coming on so don't be surprised by that yeah interesting well are there any access issues associated with gravel riding you know groups like imba have sort of a formula for getting single track 
trails built, but no one, as far as I know, is building new gravel roads or pushing to have them open to bikes. Is that something that you are familiar with or have looked at, um, particularly with your work uh, for people for bikes? That's a great question. I think, you know, there's very little from an access perspective that I'm aware of. And And I think, you know, as we said at the onset, you know, there are literally hundreds of thousands of miles of you know, fire roads and fire trails and primitive roads, um, you know, in a lot of places that most people didn't even know existed, uh, you know, until these events started popping up. And, uh, you know, I think bikes are, are, uh, have open access to those, to those places, you know, from an access perspective, I think, you know, the biggest challenge for mountain biking and, you know, I was there at the onset of the mountain bike when trails started getting, you know, shuttered mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, we're not encroaching really on wilderness areas, these these kinds of, you know, primitive roads. So it's um, much less controversial. Yeah. Well, yeah, I still, though, I wonder if, you know, as this becomes more popular, are there going to be access issues like, you know, search and rescue for instance, you know, if people are getting farther out into these backcountry areas on roads that, yeah, are or forgotten, or you know, a lot of these probably aren't even mapped anymore, right? They're overgrown, or they're not used, or or maybe they are used. Maybe they're active fire roads, and and there are issues with hordes of people going out there uh, when they need to be used for some emergency purposes. So, do you, do you think that's something that? Yeah, that people are considering. I mean, it sounds like they're not considering it, but do you think that's something down the road that that might be a problem? Well, I, you know, I really haven't heard of it being a problem or getting called out. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't see a lot of activity around the advocacy side yeah. uh, on this. And, and I do think that, you know, the various land management agencies, you know, at the federal and state level, you know they they do uh, utilize these these roads primarily for you know emergency fire access and so on. So you know they can get a vehicle on on these things um, mm-hmm. you know when they need to, and uh, you know that really cuts down the concern about well you know how do you access somebody that's gotten seriously injured? Um, True. Yeah. So I, I I it's much less of a thing than than it is uh, in mountain biking. Yeah. Are there certain areas of the country where access to gravel is better than others? I mean, you know, we kind of think that there are definitely more gravel roads around than there are trails. But I wonder if certain parts of the country have better access than others. Yeah. I, you know, I think uh, the Western, Western states, um, you know, have, have more. You know, there are, there are places, you know, all around the country where there's, you know, the, these, these kinds of primitive roads. I've, I lived on, until I recently moved back, uh, east in 2017. I, for 25 years, I lived in Southern California. So mm. I've sort of limited experience, uh, you know, riding all over the country with, with these, uh, on these kinds of primitive roads. But mm-hmm. based on, on what I've learned, uh, in my really history working with people for bikes, there's a lot of these things in, in many places. Mm. When the category first hit, you know, we started hearing from bike dealers, uh, gravel. What do you mean gravel? There, we don't have any gravel roads where, you know, where, <laughs> where we are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we sort of concluded that that was coming from sort of urban, you know, retailers. 
but uh, yeah, as you get out into the more rural areas, there's I think there's plenty of uh, plenty of places to to ride. Sometimes they're not public lands, though. Sometimes they're you know they're private lands. Mm-hmm. And uh, circling back to your comment about access, I guess that could become a problem if uh, you know hordes of people wind up showing up on on private private lands uh, for a cycling event. Yeah, and I guess I mean there probably isn't much threat of it, but I assume gravel roads are occasionally paved um, due to demands of you know the people who live on them or, or whatever. And also, I'm sure a lot of them are, are you know being overgrown, right? I mean, if they're not maintained or used for vehicle access anymore, um, they could get overgrown. But I'm a mountain biker, so that that just sounds good to me. <laughs> the more the more it can get overgrown, the more we can, you know, kind of turn it back into single track. But yeah, it definitely it is interesting to think about sort of how that uh, maybe is is similar or different to mountain bike advocacy. Yeah, exactly. So the Alta Cycling Group is very active in the electric bike space as well, and this is another, you know, seemingly really high growth area for bike sales at the moment. Is there any crossover between these two trends between gravel and electric bikes? Um, well, a little bit, you know, for sure, in a sense that those not inclined to get on a bike might consider uh, riding under more ideal circumstances. Mm-hmm. You know, I think with with e-bikes, you know, they level the playing field so, you know, everyone can get out and have a good time. Right. With gravel, you know, it's great to see families just just riding just riding for fun, but you know, it's uh it's still uh, a significant, you know, you have to be relatively fit to right. uh, you know, to to go out and really have fun on a long gravel ride. So, you know, it's, I think it's a little different target group a little bit of, of crossover, but you know, in, in many senses, not really. Hmm. So for mountain bikers who've been riding for a long time, it sort of initially felt like e-bikes were being pushed by manufacturers more than they were being demanded by the riders themselves. Is that fair to say, or are you now seeing like a, a real demand for electric bikes in the U.S. among people who are riding off-road? Well, e-bikes are the fastest growing category in, you know, the US bike industry right now. And gravel bikes are the second fastest growing category. <laughs> All right, we got the two, got <laughs> the two right here. Two subjects nailed. Yeah. You know, riding e-bikes off of paved surfaces, um, you know, was pretty controversial to mm-hmm. to start. You know, one of our brands in our portfolio is a German brand called High Bike, mm-hmm. and um, I'm responsible for <laughs> for bringing High Bike to the United States mm. a handful of, of years ago, and sort of starting this this craze. Uh, some of the work that we um, you know we do at People for Bikes is advocate for access for e-bikes, um, and you know we don't believe that they should be able to go anywhere uh, a mountain bike can go. But you know I think that there are plenty of places that um, you know they're not problematic, and uh, you know I I I really you know throughout my my history and involvement with with cycling, you know the thing that sends me the biggest thrill is is when we can get you know, someone off of their couch or out of their car and onto a bicycle, you know, and any bicycle at all. And, you know, the, the great thing about e-bikes is that they just make cycling more 
accessible for, you know, for, for people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's uh, with these pedal assist e-mountain bikes that are, you know, that are, that are currently being marketed. We call them class one uh, Mm -hmm. bikes that utilize sort of cadence and torque and, you know, actuate the motor and sort of harmony with your human power input. You can actually get quite a nice workout. Mm -hmm. Definitely. It's interesting to see that uh, a lot of, you know, mountain bike enthusiasts are even embracing the category so that they can get a couple more runs in, uh, you know, than they normally normally would on, uh, you know, on an acoustic bike as we refer to them. <laughs> and um, and and I think the other thing that's really wonderful is that a lot of people are finding sort of joy in being able to go out for a ride and bring their, you know, their, their family along, uh, their, you know, their spouse or significant other. Um, because, you know, as I said before, it, it, they totally level the playing field. And uh, I think that's, that's a good thing. Yeah. I think, you know, there's, there's been some, uh, fear from the mountain bike community that, you know, they're going to wind up causing issues with trail closures, mm-hmm. but we haven't seen any of that uh, at this at this stage of the game. Mm. I think people are, you know, trying to be responsible. I mean, you know, it's hard to hard to control everything that people do. I mean, you know, we have bad citizens uh, that ride mountain bikes. <laughs> we have <laughs> right. bad citizens that ride uh, electric mountain bikes. But you know, for the most part, I think that the industry is really trying to do uh, the right thing. Um, and, uh, you know, we need it. It's, um, you know, we, the industry hasn't in the U.S. seen uh, a lot of growth. It's been, you know, pretty flat for hmm. the last 10 or 15 years. And, um, you know, we need something that, that's, that's going to, you know, cause people to, uh, you know, to make a decision to get on a bike versus doing something else. Um, and uh, you know, I see it only as a positive thing. Yeah. Well, looking at electric mountain bikes as a whole, or sorry, electric bikes as a whole, where do you see sort of that shaking out in the future in terms of the mix? Like, like our electric bikes, is this like a mountain bike thing or is mountain biking like just a small subset of, of what electric bikes are actually going to end up doing in the U S I guess? Um, are they, are they more commuters or, or is, is mountain biking like a pretty solid use case for electric bikes? That's a really, a really good question. And I don't know that we, you know, know the answer to that at this, at this stage of the game, but, you know, I'll, I'll tell you this today, you know, off-road e-bikes, e-mountain bikes, or, you know, there's even e-gravel bikes uh, <laughs> on the market today are about a third of the total revenue they they tend they tend to be higher priced because of suspension and you know the technology but and they're you know probably about 20% of the total units being being sold hmm. okay so definitely more people are using e-bikes on on paved surfaces or you know sort of bike infrastructure rather than, you know, uh, on off-road trails. But, you know, for the same reason, you know, cyclists are uh, moving off-road because of distracted drivers, I think, you know, they're more 
e-bike riders that are, you know, attracted to, uh, you know, to riding, not necessarily on a single track, although there certainly are some. A lot of, you know, e-mountain bike riders would be very happy riding on, you know, some of these primitive roads we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Just to get away from car traffic. Uh, I see it growing and um, it's attracting, you know, more people. It's it's very interesting to me that uh, we're starting to see a consumer emerge in this category that, you know, ride off-road motorcycles. And, uh, you know, you talk about sort of restrictions and, you know, what you have to do to find a place to legally ride an off-road motorcycle in most places in the country. You know, you can, you know, you can ride a, a bike out your back door to a, to a trailhead. And, uh, you know, so we've been at People for Bikes advocating for e-mountain bike access in a responsible way mm-hmm. uh, where it doesn't put access to mountain bikes at risk. Yeah. And there's a lot of places and, you know, we hope that there'll be a lot more places to ride, uh, in the, in the coming years. We, um, you know, we focus primarily on, uh, because it's sort of governed state by state and not sort of, uh, you know, a federal rule, mm-hmm. these three different classes of, of e-bikes, because they're, they're, uh, you know, so broad in their, in their description, but we've categorized them. Class one is just a, is a pedal assist bike, uh, where the motor cuts off when the bike reaches, uh, a speed of 20 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Class two is the same thing, but it might have a throttle, which is, you know, not really appropriate for off-road riding. Yeah. And then class three is a bike that is a pedal assist bike that, you know, can, the motor doesn't cut off until the bike gets to 28 miles an hour. And uh, so we're seeing, you know, people choose these, these higher speed class three bikes a lot of times for commuting. And, And what's really cool there is that you know, we're seeing enthusiasts make the choice of buying one of these class three bikes and abandoning, you know, their car uh, you <laughs> yeah. know, for, for getting to work. And, uh, you know, class one, uh, you know, I think is a, is a wonderful thing, you know, for, for a recreational rider or, you know, a, a mild sport rider uh, or those of us that are having trouble keeping up with our friends on a mountain bike ride. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I got, uh, you know, I've been getting a little tired of waving goodbye about 15 minutes into the <laughs> ride. But, uh, some of the folks that I ride with. Yeah. Well, it, which, which of those classes is kind of more popular with consumers? I mean, I guess it depends on what they're planning to do with them. Um, and in terms of mountain biking though, you know, Class two, it doesn't, there's not much access for that as far as trails go. So I would imagine that one is not very popular. Um, but what are you seeing when people are deciding on mountain bikes? Are they, are they more interested in class one or class three? Uh, well, class one, um, we, most, um, of the places where, uh, we've gotten, you know, access, uh, has sort of relegated access to these class one, um, okay. bikes and, you know, some people say, wow, 20 miles an hour, that's so fast. Um, well, you don't, you, you don't climb at 20 miles an hour. Right? <laughs> you, you maybe climb, you know, two or three miles an hour faster mm-hmm. uh, than, you know, an, an, an unpowered uh, bike. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, it certainly depends on, you know, how you dial in the assist level. But, uh, 
most people don't ride on maximum assist level because it just sucks up, you know, battery and then mm-hmm. you, you, you know, you don't have much ride time. Uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, you can, you can ride a pretty significant distance and get a good, a good workout. I mean, there's a lot of data to sh- that shows, um, you know, the health benefits of riding a pedal assist, uh, e-bike and it, you know, people are really attracted to it. I, uh, you know, it, it probably a month doesn't go by where I don't get, you know, an, an impassioned email from someone that, you know, that bought a bike, one of these class one e-mountain bikes and, you know, has written to me that, you know, saying how it's, you know, it's changed their life. And, mm. uh, there's usually some health benefit issue that goes along with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, either they've aged out or, you know, they have knee or hip problems or, you know, heart issues or whatever it might be that caused them to have to put their, you know, their, their cycling aside as they've, as they've gotten older and they're back on the bike and losing weight and getting healthier. And that's really, that's really compelling to me. Yeah. Well, you mentioned how People for Bikes uh, has been successful at at getting e-bike access on trails in a number of states. Um, and it's actually, it's, it's quite impressive. I mean, the, the amount of progress that's been made on that front in just a few short years. Are, are there things that other bike advocates can learn from sort of how this was accomplished? I mean, it seems like legislatures, they aren't usually talking about bikes. Like they don't, they don't understand them. And it, it seems rare that, that cyclists are able to get, you know, so much legislation passed. So what's been kind of the key to that? Well, I think um, it, the, the key to it has been that we've sort of learned from, you know, advocating for mountain biking, how to advocate for e-mountain biking. Um, and uh, I, because I lived through this period um, during the advent of the mountain bike where, you know, trails were just getting closed left and right, and, you know, that was really a, a result of the industry, you know, inventing a product and you know just pushing it out on the marketplace without sort of getting in front of it sort of like electric scooters i guess yeah exactly <laughs> you know we we said okay this is going to be uh, an issue if we don't start the process of you know teaching people about you know what this is all about because mm-hmm. everybody uh when you say electric bike thinks that it's a motorcycle and uh, when you get on one of them and you know you have the opportunity to demo one of these class one pedal assist mountain bikes to someone that's that's uninitiated Mm -hmm. and they go wow that's completely different than what i expected it's you know (laughs) it's it's really a bike and you know i i I don't really it's nothing like what i anticipated Mm -hmm. so we did just that you know we started you know we we Actually, one of the first things we did is that we did an environmental impact study uh, by hiring IMBA Trail Solutions to to do it for us. Hmm. You know, they were very apprehensive at, at first, and you know, basically their position was, well, you know, we don't have anything against these things; they just shouldn't be allowed where you know mountain bikes are allowed. They're fine where you know motorized uh, you know vehicles are allowed, but but not where mountain bikes are allowed. And, you know, they sort of came around to a certain extent um, after we did this environmental impact study that basically showed, you know, that these things were 
about as close to a normal mountain bike as, as they possibly could be and completely different from an impact perspective. And then, you know, we, you know, we turned towards uh, the social impacts um, because that was the next thing that was raised, that it was going to cause user conflicts out on the trail. And um, we did, uh, you know, the first uh, social impact study that we did was in Fruta. Mm. And, uh, you know, we interviewed hundreds of people that were riding uh, mountain bikes on, on the trail at the trailhead. And a lot of people didn't even realize that there are, <laughs> you know, e-mountain bikes in the mix. And, uh, and, and those that did said, yeah, I don't really have a problem with them. Uh, couple people, you know, said, yeah, those damn things, they shouldn't be allowed on, on the trail. But, you know, I, I think for the most part, you know, the mountain bike community is slowly but surely sort of becoming more open-minded. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and I think, you know, like I've said, um, you know, we're trying to be responsible. Can't always control what everybody does, but, you know, we're, we're, uh, we've, we've done a lot of work, um, you know, with uh, the various land management agencies doing, you know, these uh, regional workshops where we get, you know, uh, rangers and, and, you know, enforcement uh, folks on these things. So they have an understanding, they know what they look like, and they know what, you know, the expectations are, they have a better understanding of, uh, you know, of the, of the product and, and the, the core riders. And we invite them in to have a conversation about it, uh, along with, you know, mountain bike uh, user groups and, and, uh, and such. And uh, they've been incredibly productive. We're actually really sorry that, you know, this year they've all been canceled because of, uh, of uh, the COVID situation. But uh, we've made great progress by doing that and then, you know, letting the the agencies and the community sort of decide how they want to handle them. Um, consumers are buying them, they're showing up, and, you know, we just want to make sure that, you know, users understand where they're legal to ride and where they're not legal to ride. Right. Yeah, yeah, you make a really good point about um, e-bikes in particular, but I think it's, it's true about all bikes that, you know, once somebody gets a chance to ride one and to really get a feel for it and understand what it's like, um, then I think they can more effectively, you know, govern it or, or regulate it or whatever uh, the case may be. And, you know, you see that in, in bike commuting all the time as well. You know, I mean, people don't understand the need for, you know, dedicated bike lanes until they're on a bike on the road and cars are whizzing past them and they say, huh, yeah, okay, I get it now, <laughs> like why this needs to exist. And so, yeah, it seems like all types of bike advocates could learn from that in, in terms of like making bikes available for people and setting up events where, you know, key stakeholders can try riding one and, and see what it's like. And, you know, they don't have to love it, but they at least hopefully they can understand it a little better. Yeah, you know, I think from a bicycle advocacy perspective, you know, e-bikes really help in any category because just getting people on a on a bike, you know, any kind of bike, mm-hmm. you know, changes uh, people's perception and uh, you know about cycling in general. And um, you know, the more people that are exposed to cycling, the better it is for every kind of cyclist. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it, it's interesting because. 
you know, back in the 70s when I was growing up, there was, you know, this whole environmental thing. And that was the reason to ride because it was good for planet Earth, you know, <laughs> right. to, to not to get out of your gas guzzling car and, you know, and onto a bike for whatever, you know, reason. And it was, you know, started out a little bit as a hippy dippy kind of a, you know, thing to, to do. But, you know, then, you know, businessmen were, you know, riding their bike in the inner city to commute to work because they, you know, they, they, uh, they saw, you know, there was significant efficiency and, you know, people started, you know, the fitness and sport trends started to, started to build. And, uh, you know, we, we, what we didn't do in this country um, was, you know, a lot of uh, European countries where cycling is really ingrained into the culture. You know, we, we didn't sort of penalize people for driving cars and invest in, you know, building better infrastructure for cycling. You know, everybody points to the Netherlands about, you know, about how, you know, so many Dutch, um, you know, just, you know, I mean, from a, 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 a use perspective, um, uh, you know, the, the Dutch are number one in terms of, you know, um, using bicycles for transportation. And, you know, I think had we done the same back in the 70s where there was this opportunity to really, you know, there was an awareness about cycling, there was an opportunity to sort of build that infrastructure that would have kept more people uh, riding, you know, we sort of turned back to subsidizing the, <laughs> you know, the, the, the fossil fuel uh, industry. Um, and that infrastructure didn't get built. And, you know, it's, it's, it's circled back around to some extent. And, you know, it, it's, it's happening in, in places, uh, you know, and certainly, certainly uh, in, you know, in really congested cities. Um, and more and more people are, are using, you know, bikes for transportation um, than I think ever before in, in the United States. It's really, it's really good to see. Um, and I think that spawns people to, you know, use bikes for other activities uh, like sport and recreation, which, which is awesome. Yeah. Well, as someone who owned local bike shops for many years, what are the challenges and opportunities even for brick and mortar retailers today? Well, I think the biggest challenge is that the consumer has access to all the information available on the web in their, you know, in their pocket on their smartphones today. And, you know, so retailers can't just, you know, show up and rely on being uh, a knowledge resource anymore. They've got to they've got to find some other way to add value and, uh, you know, providing great service and cre creating sort of communities, um, you know, within their stores being sort of the epicenter for, for that community is essential. And, um, you know, that create that that really uh you know, creates uh, some very positive things. Um, but for a lot of retailers, especially those that have been around for a while, um, it means change. And, you know, people are so, you know, resistant to, uh, to change. And it takes energy, you know. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, those that are, um, that are open, you know, to, to, to changing in that regard, you know, open to consumers, no matter how they engage, uh, you know, are doing, are doing really well. The ones that are stuck uh, and resistant to the change are, for the most part, you know, really struggling. And there's a pretty good mix of both right now. Um, yeah. 
the, the folks that have figured it out, you know, are, are, uh, are high-fiving and, and, doing, and doing well. And, uh, you know, those that just show up and expect uh, that people are going to line up at their front door are uh, it's like, well, what's happening? You know, floor traffic is way down. Um, but it's, you know, I think it's all about information. Um, and uh, there's a lot of great information on the web. Yeah. Well, if you were to open up a, a bike shop today, what would it look like? I mean, how <laughs> would it be, you know, small sales floor and, you know, big shop area? Would, would it be a coffee shop slash bike shop? I mean, what, what would you do if you, if you were, I mean, you, you mentioned if you're someone who's been in the industry a while, it's tough to change, but you know, if you had a clean slate, what, what would you kind of see as, as a good model for people going forward? Well, I think it depends on sort of the geographic area that you're you're in, and whether it's you know urban, suburban, or rural. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in in an urban market, retail space is expensive these days. So you know, the ten thousand square foot bike shop in, is probably not going to make it in you know in an urban area. Uh, I had three stores in Philadelphia. One was right in Center City, Philadelphia. Um, and, uh, you know, I couldn't do what we did, you know, uh, back then. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, you know, I think it would be downsized, more boutique-y. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I think I'd rely on, you know, digital resources and, you know, having sort of a showroom where you can, uh, you know, really have sort of a fusion of online and in-store. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the future. Yeah. For, for retail today, especially in, you know, those, uh, those, those urban uh, centers, you know, the more, uh, the more suburban stores, um, you know, they can be a little bit bigger with more product on, on the floor, mm-hmm. but you still have to, you know, fuse online and in store and provide uh, sort of, a, you know, an incredible customer experience to be successful today. Hmm. Yeah. So after gravel bikes and electric bikes, what's next? What do you, what do you see as the next big trend? I know we're like kind of in the middle or even maybe kind of the beginning of both of these, but, but is there anything else on the horizon that, that you could foresee as maybe becoming big one day? It's a great question. Uh, I have some thoughts, but I have no desire to share. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Playing it close um, to the vest. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, Look, I, I think that um, it's hard to predict. Um, you know, we see trends developing, you know, that could turn into the next big thing. But I think we have um, a very long way to go to maximize our opportunity around gravel and, and e-bikes. And uh, one that could last, you know, I mean, decades more. Um, you know, we're just scratching the surface, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, it's all about getting more people riding and riding more often. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, the, the interesting thing is, you know, with, in this period of, of COVID, you know, we're starting to see an, another bike boom. Um, and, you know, the, the, the streets are, are uh, you know, quieter. They're, they're not as trafficked and, uh, you know, in, in the neighborhood where I live, it's just really encouraging to see, you know, families out riding with their kids and discovering how much fun cycling can be. Um, so who knows? We might be seeing, you know, that 70 bike boom days uh, triggered by, by COVID-19. 
Yeah. Well, how important though is it to to be sort of at the forefront of these trends? You know, it seems like with a lot of this stuff, it, it kind of bubbles up from the smaller brands first, right? And and I can't think of any cases where big brands have just completely dropped the ball, so to speak, right? Like 29ers took a while for for the bigger players to to come out with those bikes, but eventually they did, you know, when the time was right, when the volumes were high enough and yeah, so how like how important are the trends really uh, when it comes to to big brands like yours? Yeah, I think I think that um, you know uh, a lot of times you're right. Small brands sort of create those those trends, and you know as it develops, um, you know the the larger, uh, sometimes more savvy uh, companies decide you know when to pull the trigger and make the investment to to get behind it when they're confident that that trend is ready for prime time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, it's uh, it's an interesting phenomenon. I mean, we have, um, you know, some big global brands uh, in the, you know, in, in, in the U.S. Um, that are dominant, dominant players on a lot of, a lot of fronts. Um, but I think, you know, the interesting thing about the bike industry is that there's always room for smaller companies to be successful if they can really focus in and, uh, you know, identify their target, target consumer and, and really listen to what the consumer is saying and, uh, you know, develop product that really meets their needs. Yeah, that's great. Well, Larry, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I know I learned a lot about the industry and I'm sure our listeners will as well. So thanks. My pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for having me. 